Hello, everybody. This is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast for the week of June 5th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Lockdown Week 12. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello, everyone. I'm here with uh, No Film School writer, Michelle De La Tour. Hey, everyone. And we're going to be talking about the role of the filmmaker in periods of civil unrest. We're going to be talking about some tech tips for shooting in these kind of scenarios and any scenario in which you might not be able to maintain control of your filming equipment. And we're going to be talking about uh, important films that deal with topics that we feel are relevant to what's going on right now, this week, on the No Film School podcast. The first thing we're going to be covering this week, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, but if not, America has... Uh, a mass protest movement happening across all of America right now. I, I think it's happened in all 50 states. Uh, I, you know, multiple cities across many states, multiple in all the major cities, multiple protests all across major cities. We are in the middle of watching a um, massive gut reaction to police violence against black Americans, against black people. And uh, we are watching police reaction to that happen. Many of us are participating. Uh, I know we have a lot of worldwide listeners, but I'm sure that you're aware of this going on because there's sister protests happening around the world. I've seen amazing pictures from Amsterdam and Berlin. Um, we're going to talk about this a little bit because how can you not talk about it? It's an, it's a, it's a world defining event. It is something that we're aware of is, you know, certain things feel like they might actually be changing. Um, but this is a filmmaking podcast, so we're also going to talk about it in terms of what are the responsibilities of filmmakers and how do filmmakers deal with this and, and how do those things go? I mean, one thing that, uh, as you know, Spike Lee has been someone I mean, going all the way back to do the right thing has been dealing with all of these issues in his filmmaking and, uh, is already out with a short film, three brothers about, um, Eric Garner and George Floyd and Radio Rahim from Do the Right Thing, uh, sort of cutting together the connections between these characters over time. Um, and, you know, so it's something that, you know, th there were three things that sort of jumped out at me when I thought about this is that one, filmmakers have an obligation to try and soak up the truth of the world they live in. Like if we're going to be storytellers, we want those stories we tell to feel true and authentically lived. And like, you can't do that if you don't pay attention to what is actually going on in the world around you. And so like, I think all of us are paying a tremendous amount of attention as human beings to like exactly what is going on right now, but also to comment on it. If you have insight as Spike Lee does, and then also to document is the, is sort of the other angle here. And I think we're seeing, you know, none of this would be happening or it wouldn't be happening in exactly the same way if it wasn't for video cameras, video cameras, videotaping the, the murder of George Floyd, um, video, video distribution platforms, communicating that imagery that is so emotionally effective, affecting to so many people that created this gut reaction in people. Um, you know, and this is Will Smith's quote from Twitter, but Will Smith's quote is like, you know, this is this has been happening for hundreds of years. The only thing new is that we've got it on videotape. Um, and videotape in this case does change our reaction to it, right? Like if that had happened and no one had filmed it, we would not know. And this is something that, you know, going back to the LA riots and, and um, videotaping, witnessing these things, being able to communicate that thing you saw to other people has really 
changed, but then, you know, the LA riots were 28 years ago and yet 28 years later, police are still out there, uh, committing these acts, you know, the beating of Rodney King and the murder of George Floyd with, and so it, it also begs the question of like, does documenting actually create enough change or is documenting and reporting just one part of a much larger, um, struggle? This is a, this is an extremely bizarre time because in case anybody forgot, there's also a global pandemic happening. <laughs> right, we've all been un- under quarantine. Just in case anybody forgot, because sometimes I forget. There's just no precedent. The meme that I saw that that nailed it was that we've combined the 1918 flu with the civil unrest of 1968 with the great depression with I think even a couple other things. Um, and it's all happening. And because yes, this is a, this is a filmmaking podcast and we are by filmmakers for filmmakers. The crazy thing about all of this is that we are in the era of mass media and mass distribution of that media instantaneously. When Rodney King happened, um, I've, I'm an Angelino. Like I remember being here then. I remember the LAPD has a horrible history and a horrible past, um, and that was a watershed moment because people saw what it was about. Um, it was actually recorded and shown and on the news. And oh my god, it's can't, you can't believe it. Um, the idea of it, and this kind of ties into the idea of where the filmmaker comes in. The idea of manipulating a narrative through visual storytelling changes when you're seeing something raw that just happened. Um, and there's still the idea of the manipulation of the angle or the context or as, as we all turn to our Instagram feeds or our Twitter or the news and we see an angle of a protester shot by a policeman, we gasp and then we wonder about the context or there may be somebody who points out well what happened before i mean even in the instance of george floyd uh that footage is like almost unbearable to to witness and watch and so like so many of these things this is just one instance in such a long line of them um it does make you wonder one does the visibility of it change anything um it certainly adds fuel to the outrage. And two, uh, do people still continue to look for ways to say, oh, this is manipulated in that way or that was manipulated in this way? But I think the key thing um, to me is that filmmakers have an opportunity, not an obligation because I think you choose you know, your path, but an opportunity to point their cameras at the world around them, either literally or figuratively, and tell stories about the things that are happening and the way they affect humanity. And those stories in turn define the moment. When we talk later about the movies or the TV shows that we think articulate some of the points, we are going to be talking about pieces of of created narrative that become a flag planted in history that say this happened and this is what it means and influence how people view these very issues. So I think should you choose as a filmmaker to take action here, there's some incredible things that can be done. And you don't need to do the dangerous thing 
which I wholly support people doing, of going out there and, and grabbing footage. But you can also do the thing of putting it together and promoting it or sharing it. I've seen some really interesting editing work done of some of the stuff that's happening because it's hard to collect it all in one place. Like there's so many tweets that cover so many angles that cover so many incidents that we need people to do the job of collecting this and presenting it and sharing it and um, stitching it together in a meaningful way that we can track and, and there's just, you know, there's a lot to do here and uh, there's work to do if you want to do it that relates to this. And you can use it as a chance to open up your perspective, but also sh- share your perspective on it with the world. That's your voice, um, and that's how we will. That's how we will remember what happened. Um, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just. It's been insane. It's been an insane few days, and. Uh, we're at a point where I think nobody even knows what's going to happen tomorrow. There is, you said this eloquently, there is work to be, to do. There's also work to be done. And it doesn't necessarily land, have to land in the filmmaking sphere. But I think I would, I think we would be remiss if we didn't state, if I didn't state that there are, I think, structures within the filmmaking world in kind of our world at large that, of both privilege and inequity. And I think there's a, there's a digital divide. I think we have, you know, there are industry panels that are sometimes all white or all male or all white and male. Um, and we have opportunities that pop up every once in a while that are free or unpaid. And so there are only a certain number of people who can take advantage of that. And so if, if you're not putting the lens in the world, like we can put the lens on ourselves. Um, there, you can volunteer now, we can elevate, we can donate, we can listen. Now's a great time to elevate films and to elevate stories and to, to do the work. And so I think we, I would be remiss if I didn't just state. <laughs> I think that there are no, structures really in, our, like in our immediate world. I've, I'm glad you did because I think that sometimes we think about these things only in terms of the big stuff that's happening or the big stuff that's already happened. And we don't always look to like what can you do in your immediate surroundings in your immediate industry what can you promote or what can you get behind and sometimes in the entertainment industry the idea of diversity quotas bothers people because they don't want to lose opportunity just for the sake of diversity and that's true in every industry but we've heard it a lot in our industry at least i have even among people who are you know progressive folks i've heard that yeah and i always think that you know, nobody wants to miss out on opportunity. Everyone wants to feel like it's all fair, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not all fair. The system is rigged and has been. And I, I feel strongly that the important, the best way for me, the way I think about it is that we want ideas, perspectives, and experiences and stories from different kinds of people because it'll make the content more interesting. And we should always look for ways to get that better content by expanding the palette of who's making stuff and who we're listening to and who we're hiring. Um, Easier said than done, but I think that that's an important point you're making, which is that this isn't just about um, taking action in in these protests or, you know, in this particular instance with the the way that our – Law enforcement officials 
behave. It could just be how do you approach equality and diversity in the world you operate in. From what I understand, diversity quotas don't work all the time because it starts feeling like a numbers game. Whereas yeah. No, yeah. diversity exactly. as a whole is, you know, an invitation to be a part of, a, you know, enriching the community, not establishing a number. And so, and then it starts to feel like it's only, okay, we did it. You know, we hired right. someone new. Great. We're done. As opposed Put to the other way around. Listen to them. Exactly. Or then now they become the expert, right? You know, you go to them for all of your. And then uh, you force them to become a spokesperson exactly. for something that they didn't sign up to be a spokesman for because they're exactly. actually just a human being. Yeah. No, there's, I mean, there's so many layers. Yeah. The most amazing example of that being Donald Glover, when he was writing for 30 Rock, actually wrote a lot of Kenneth because Donald Glover was from small town, Stone Mountain, Georgia. And so he could do a lot of great Kenneth, Stone Mountain, Georgia gags. And like, you know, there's like the stereotype of the diversity hire is that they are going to, you know, that Donald Glover would be expected to write all of the Tracy gags. But then in reality, they were like, oh, actually, no, people are multidimensional and like they are not defined by just one category. And Donald Glover brought a tremendous amount of good Kenneth gags to the table. I love I didn't know that story. And I love that because that also highlights, it highlights that things aren't exactly the way you expect them to be, but it also highlights that you bring someone in because they can provide a perspective that's unique to them, that they have, that may come with what what their diversity is and may not. It may just be something that they bring to the table because they're a unique person. I also think that like we've been talking behind the camera, but it's also important to let this inform diversity in front of the camera and the stories we're writing and the stories we're telling in the, like, you know, if you are working on a cop show right now, the reality of the relationship between the cops and the populace is something that you have to like really look at and really acknowledge. And like one of the reasons why I think shows like the wire have gotten as much respect as they have is because David Simon had spent so much time embedded with the Baltimore police. He had some perspective. And so there's, but there's even some stuff there that looking back on, you're like, I don't necessarily know. Yeah. Uh, So it's, it's a very complicated, you know, the wire was a show about people trying to be good cops in a bad broken system. And it also goes back, you know, one of the themes of the wire going back to what Michelle was just saying is that, you know, one of the themes of the wires is individual action. Like this is, you know, it's man versus system. It's like Greek tragedy level show, but like bunny Colvin saying, all right, drugs are just not going to be legal in these blocks. I'm going to do the thing I can individually do to try and individually make whatever changes within my power. Like that is something we can all keep doing on our own lives is we can say, okay, when I'm writing things, when I'm hiring on jobs, when I'm doing all of these things, like what can I be doing? But even a show like the wire, which tries to be very true about Baltimore. You know, my family lives in Baltimore, so I pay a lot of attention to Baltimore news, but you don't have to pay a lot of attention to Baltimore news to know that like cops also effectively murdered Freddie Gray by driving around so crazily. He got a spinal injury in the back of the van. Uh, Police cameras, uh, body cameras in Baltimore have shown cops. This one's the most amazing one. They were like the body camera footage showed them planting cocaine and then busting someone for it because the cops didn't understand that the body cameras started two minutes before they pressed play, pressed record. So they like did the planting and then they pressed record, but the camera records two minutes backwards in time. It's always recording and the cops didn't get that. So like, and those things aren't in the wire, like the wire, even the wire, which is a great show still prevents presents a very, I wouldn't say sanitized because there are things the cops do in the wire that are definitely borderline illegal, but it's still still, cops and robbers at the end of the day, right? It's still cops and robbers. 
Yeah, it still boils it down to something, and that and narrative has to do that, but on in some way. But I think that you're making a really good point about both the wire reality and just the depiction of law enforcement in general. We have ideas about quote unquote good guys with guns and saving heroics and saving people, and then we have reality. And I think that there is a problem with the. You know, we could go on forever about this, I'm sure. And, and, it, but there's a problem with the mythology in this nation and this culture of heroes riding in and saving the day with weapons. <laughs> that is maybe part of what feeds into a mentality that's a little bit destructive, I would say, without going down that rabbit hole. But it's okay to want that. Like, it's okay. Like, I want. I want cops to trap down the drug dealer. I want that's selling to kids in high schools. I want that. I want a detective to find the, the murderer. Like I, like we want these things from a police force, but I feel like some of our media shies away from acknowledging that just because we want that these other things also happen. And it's part of the full story of the system. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's both sides. Like Hollywood presents these images, but Hollywood always only presents them because people do hunger for them. Like we we want hero figures, so it's like sure. a very complicated mess. In and there isn't a lot of media that shows a lot of popular media deals in a very specific concept of what law enforcement looks like that ignores large swaths of what law enforcement actually does in many cases. I think there's a lot of power in the characters and their actions in our work. And the more that those characters are anti-racist, the more that those characters are dif- are something different that we haven't seen before. Um, and that the f- creatives that are tackling those characters are diverse, the better off we're going to be. That's a great point. And I have one. I have one thing I want to tack on to it that I've thought about a lot in my life, but as a parent, I've I've been reminded of how true it is. Humans, we do a thing, and it, and it really relates to the power of narrative and how we are, how we operate as storytellers and filmmakers. We do this thing where we imitate what we like, but we don't always imitate the depth of it. We sometimes just imitate the surface of it, like. If my kid watches a movie and a character he likes does a physical gesture that like creates a spider web out of his hand or casts a spell, the kid will do that gesture thinking that that's why that person's a hero. Do you guys know what I'm talking what I mean? Like yes, sometimes indeed. you sometimes you connect a superficial action and I don't with the outcome and the meaning and the power and the whatever it is, the superhumanness. And that's something that doesn't just happen to the little kids. That happens to all. We all still connect and we all still put those pieces together mentally. There's a little bit of a monkey see monkey do always. And I think that that's why it matters, Michelle, when you say we have certain power with characters we create and what they do. We really do. Like if they are just in a way we believe they can be just, if they are heroic in a way that that is heroic, and if they do things, simple, obvious things that aren't in complex dialogue scenes, but are just heroic, um, then then we will imitate. 
or we will adopt it. Um, and I like, I like to kill a mockingbird comes to mind. Like, wasn't he voted the greatest cinema hero ever in in something? I, I mean, th- that was obviously to make a point, but, um, I think that is an immensely powerful tool at your disposal as a storyteller. And if you don't feel like you're the right person to write those characters, go collaborate with someone who is like, if you want to go write that story, but you feel like if you want to go write a story, but you feel like you need an experience that is different than your own to, to put that together, like collaborate. It doesn't have to, you don't have to guess, you know, like go find someone who's interested in that story, collaborate with them to write it. Um, use, you, you can use your ideas and, and your own power to elevate others. So um, those people are out there. There's a bias in cinema, and the TV has the same bias too, towards uh, the myth that collective action does nothing and individual action does everything. And you see this over and over in movies where like collective action is a bunch of people squabbling and a bunch of people <laughs> like can't decide what granola to buy. And, and like <laughs> you see this constantly of this idea that like big groups of people can't accomplish anything and the individual has to stake out on their own to do anything. And that's total horseshit. <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely part of American mythology too. It's like, where's the big strong man who's going to tell everybody silence Here's what we do. Here's the truth. <laughs> and it's part of my theory as to why, because um, if you think about it, the American Revolution is the least filmed of our wars. There are like a million World War II movies. There are so many Civil War movies. How many off the top of your head American Revolutionary movies can you name? And I think part of the problem is that that was a collective action. Like George Washington was a reluctant leader who was roped into it. Like it was really a group of men, deeply conflicted, like horribly complicated men, not perfect men, perf- uh, men who wrote slavery into the Constitution, which we're still dealing with 200 years later. Yeah, but, thanks, founders. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but like kicked off by the Boston massacre, which, you know, was very like the murder of Crispus, the attack, the hitting of Crispus addicts with the butt of a cop's gun leading to riots and, uh, shop owners closing their shops, uh, leading to the Boston massacre, like not dissimilar from what is happening today and a massive social change in the birth of our nation, but a very hard thing for filmmakers to wrap their head around to the point where you see very few movies about it. You know, the first one that comes to mind is the Mel Gibson bizarre, the Patriot movie. That's what came to mind too. That movie is so strange. Um, You know, and it, and I think it's because, uh, you know, I think there is this weird mythos that runs through cinema that collective action is ineffective, but actually collective action is hugely effective and groups of people coming together with a shared mission to try and accomplish something is like actually one of the most powerful things in the world. And if you've ever, you know, I've been like, I've been lucky enough to be part of a couple of groups of people that have really practiced how we communicate together as a team and working together on collectively accomplishing things, uh, not in the political sphere, but you know, in, in other spheres. And it's like, a tremendously exciting, rewarding thing. And that is, if you look at history, you know, Martin Luther King was not the only person fighting for civil rights in the sixties. He was one of many, many people working together in a variety of organized fashions. And that is how change happens. 
I yes, I agree. It's a great point, and I also think it ties into part of part of the issue is that narrative and protagonists and the way we approach storytelling so often has to do with like the singular arc. Also, by the way, it doesn't have to be. Ensembles work really well. Stories about change don't have to happen about an individual's change. Like there's all kinds of ways you can approach telling stories, but we have a tendency to fall into a pattern and not just in Hollywood, like since the first, since the epic of Gilgamesh, we've had a tendency to tell a story about one person surmounting certain obstacles. Oftentimes society is separated from them or, or civilization is separated from them. So I think it, I think we perpetuate that idea in the way we craft narrative, but um, it's also the way we craft narrative and how we understand events. So it's easier for us to look at an event like the civil rights movement and have a protagonist like Martin Luther King or a singular, you know, that's part of how we make sense of the world, but there are other ways and more accurate ways. Look, Reds, the, the Warren Beatty movie is like about a movement, but they turned it into a story about a man, you know, um, a, a relation man. <laughs> yes, a very handsome man, right? But like, that's the thing is like, it's a story about communism. It's like the ultimate like group uprising thing that they were like, but what if it's just this one handsome guy? Tech news. So in tech news this week, there is some news, but we'll, we'll talk about news next week. I, I wanted specifically to use our tech news section this week to talk about a couple tech tips about shooting in complicated circumstances. Now, this is specifically about, you know, uh, I don't know if we're going to call this civil unrest or police riot or what we're going to refer to this as being, but now is a complicated time to shoot. If you go on Twitter, you can easily find footage of people whose phones are being confiscated, people whose phones are getting shot with rubber bullets. There's an amazing Twitter video where you're watching someone shoot and the video explodes their phone. Um, you know, this is a complicated time to be shooting. Um, and so we wanted to talk about some of the tech implications of that and things you might consider while you're doing. But this is all, all advice that also applies in a variety of other situations and and uh, has come up over and over again in my filmmaking career. So first off, for some weird reason, uh, your face scan and your fingerprint are considered public information. So let's say you're in a situation in which, uh, you know, and like I'm going to, keep this relatively neutral, but let's say you were in a situation where you do not want authorities to be able to scan your phone. You can actually be compelled to put your fingerprint or face print on a phone legally in court. However, because you store a numerical passcode in your brain, that is considered private information. Your fingerprints and your face public, what's in your brain private. So before you go to any of these events, the first thing you should do is turn off face ID and fingerprint ID on whatever phone you are using. Because if you want to protect the contents of your phone from uh, warrants, the best thing you can do is make sure you have a um, finger, uh, a number code on your phone that is stored in your brain. Um, some people also suggest a burner phone. I mean, burner phones are kind of expensive, but if you can do a burner phone, that is probably great. The next piece of tech advice is live streaming wherever possible. There are a variety of services for this. There are services that will record your live stream, even if no one is watching it. So live streaming is beneficial because then if you have an audience, you know, there's people whose live streams I follow, there's interesting live streams out there, but, um, you can also just live stream in order to instantly have a recording so that if your phone is lost or damaged, you have all of that. Everything you've recorded has been recorded and is not lost. Even And then if, you could take that later and edit it, 
or pull it down and download it. What would be a service that does that? Do you know of any? Off the top of my head, I know you can do Facebook and Instagram and you can live stream to them and have them record it. I believe YouTube, you could also live stream and have it record your live stream as you do it. I think Vimeo does too. Vimeo does it. Twitch does it. Yeah. Um, So that is, you know, certainly a thing you want to consider. Another thing you want to consider is multiple angles and backups. And this is actually something that's true of a lot of documentary situations. But like now is a great time, you know, if you're going out and if there's the potential of being hit in the head with tear gas or with uh, rubber bullets, which rubber bullets. We know it's true. (laughs) Yeah. Which are supposed to be shot at the ground or being shot directly at people. um, You should be wearing a helmet if you have one. And uh, a helmet's a great place to mount a backup GoPro. If you've got a GoPro, if you use your GoPro, GoPro, many filmmakers own GoPros or Osmo actions from DJI are comparable because they're just sort of a handy thing to have around. I can't tell you the number of shoots where it's like, you know, we're shooting on a red Epic or whatever, but we just throw a GoPro in the car. We throw it into the pool for when the character dives in or whatever. And, you know, most filmmakers end up owning action cams. Rigging that action cam up to get another angle that also might survive if your camera gets if your phone gets grabbed or damaged is a really useful thing to consider. And good audio is something that a lot of people don't really appreciate, but like you know, good audio is a huge thing, and it's one of the weaknesses of action cameras and phones. So let's say you have an action camera you've rigged up, like going out with your audio recorder in your hand is actually going to be something really useful to get better audio of the scene. I can I can definitely tell you I've been listening to a tremendous number of podcasts from people who've been at protests, who've been at um, these events all week, and you can definitely tell the people who've been out there with an actual audio recorder, and then the people who are like, well, you can't really hear what's going on, but I'm going to tell you what I heard, and then you're going to hear it in the thing because they're just using your phone audio so i would definitely say that if you have an audio recorder it is worth trying to bring it with you and record in this situation just so that you can get at least something closer to a better sound situation um obviously you know some that now this is going to be slightly less techie advice uh you know bring water if you do get hit with pepper spray close your eyes and pour water over your face and then open your eyes letting the water pour into your eyes it's the most effective thing for pepper spray i would just yeah i would just be like is safe as you can possibly be and careful and cons- like what would you say about someone taking a drone out so they can get places so maybe are a lot of people out with drones a lot of the most effective footage has been with drones i've read a lot of inter- interesting interviews of people with drones i would say that be prepared there are anti-drone tactics now there are you know there are weapons you can use to attack drones and and net throwers and things like that so I would, you know, a lot of the drone people I know have two or three drones. They have like the $300 party drone and then they have like the $3,000 drone they work with. You probably want to go out with the $300 drone. You're not guaranteed that you're going to get it back. Makes sense. Yeah. I figure if you do that, you're risking the life of the drone. But if you can find a way to get the footage despite that, it could be cool and worth it maybe to some people. Um, and I'm just thinking of ways you can do things that are not necessarily putting you directly in harm's way, but um, it's uh, it's a brave thing to do. And I think we should all be very grateful that there are people who are doing it, not just, I mean, news media from major outlets are being injured, but um, yeah. but just regular folks are being injured and putting themselves out there and getting us footage that uh, is just critical. This is also a beautiful opportunity for copyleft. So, you know, I regularly see things showing up in my Twitter feed where people are like, please share this as widely as possible. Just credit me. 
And that shows up all the time. And so like copyleft, if you're not familiar with the concept, is the idea that copyright, as the system has been set up in America, has gone too far. That copyright is something that certainly has its uses and nobody's saying abolish it. It's not, we don't need to completely get rid of it. But like the law has been corrupted by corporate interests that have gone to an incredibly uh, aggressive place with copyright and that copyleft is a variety of movements of people who are driven by the idea that some information doesn't need as much protection and that we have a more robust conversation if some of it is free. And so, you know, I, I haven't actually seen anybody specifically call out copyleft tenants and Twitter, but I've certainly seen a whole lot of people who are like, please share this, please share this. This should be shared. This, you know, I shot this and I want this out there. And I think in those certain situations like resharing that stuff including that in a cut provided that you're crediting those people right so anything that you do download anything that you do like you know because a lot of those people who have particularly engaging footage are probably getting 50 dms from news sources asking them for permission all at once and you might not hear from them but if you want to be able to blast it out to your own audience or you want to be able to just like please credit people um Retweet, Make sure yeah. you're pointing back to what the sources are provided that they gave something like, please share. You know, some of this stuff just needs to go out into the world as quickly as possible. And, you know, if you are interested in recutting sections of it, if you are interested in like creating new juxtapositions, you know, looking at Three Brothers by Spike Lee, it's just juxtapositions of these these moments. And uh, it it's powerful. Like the art of the edit, like, forcing us to look at two things back to back as a powerful art. And if you want to do that with some of this footage, like this is a great opportunity to explore what is available to you there. Okay. And then our last section this week is going to be deep cuts. And we're going to talk about works that are particularly relevant, important about uh, what we are talking about today. So, George. Cool. I'll start. I'm going to say there's so many movies and television shows. We've referenced a bunch of them already that cover civil unrest, intolerance, um, these things that are happening. But one that really sticks in my mind is Bad Day at Black Rock, which is oh, yeah. A 1955 film, I believe, starring Spencer Tracy, directed by John Sturgis. And I think I like, well, it's a great movie. It's an extremely well-made movie. And the way in which the, it's a mystery. So don't worry, you won't be bored just because it's old. It will hook you. P.T. Anderson is on record as saying he learned everything he needed to learn about filmmaking from the director's commentary on the Laserdisc for Bad Day at Black Rock. Laserdisc. Yes. Which is why I bought that Laserdisc. Yes. And you know what's so funny, Charles? We're like, we grew we lived like parallel for so long. I remember when I heard him say that on the Boogie Nights commentary track, because that's how one of the things he says. And I was like, huh, I guess I got to see that movie. Um, uh, and then I saw, right, and then I saw it, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's yeah, it's it's but, amazing." But it's a great, it's just great filmmaking. But it's also such a powerful story because it's from 1955. So you have to picture that world. You have to understand the context of that world and the power of a story like this at the time. And it's about intolerance and racism, and it's about crimes against people of different races and backgrounds 
and justice and why and and it but it also ends up just being about the humanity and the heroism of all people that that can be within all people and it's it's both uplifting and beautiful and um also extremely honest and dark in its portrayal but it's got some of the best like it doesn't just have spencer tracy who's an all-timer robert ryan who's just a great actor he plays great good guys and bad guys is in it ernest borgnine who's amazing is in it lee marvin who is amazing is in it and uh there's just so much good stuff happening it's really like a western noir i don't know what else to call it but it is a great movie and it and it deals with post-war themes and um beyond just being entertaining uh i think it gets at the idea of why why we don't want to discriminate people based on their ethnic background the color of their skin the country they were born in etc cetera, etc cetera. um or for any reason and i i love it i'll go next so i'm actually gonna hit two i'm gonna hit two i'm gonna first hit a great movie that everybody should see called the battle of Algiers. Uh, it was nominated. It, it's one of those rare movies that was nominated in multiple different years for Academy Award in 67. It was nominated for best foreign film, I think. And then uh, foreign language film and then best screenplay and best director in 69 when it got released in America two years later, which like almost never happens. Uh, it's directed by Guillermo Pon- uh, Ponacorvo stars Sadi Yassef and Gene Martin. Gene Martin was an actor who had fought in the French resistance. And then in battle of Algiers is playing the head of the French paratrooper unit. That's like attacking the Algerian resistance. So it's set in the Algerian war from 54 to 62, the war of Algerians, like trying to throw off French colonial powers. So, you know, Gene Martin goes from a resistor in World War II to playing the oppressor in this movie, but it's great. It's one of the early, like, you know, faux documentary style films. It's shot in a documentary feeling. It is very uh, pleasantly intense. And it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the early movies to like actually show guerrilla warfare uh, or to try and portray it. Uh, Shows the torture used by colonial powers on guerrilla fighters. It is a, uh, it's a really enjoyable, like great movie. It like everybody should go see Battle of yeah, Algiers. I would just say it's like it's kind of like a must see under any circumstances. I feel like it should be on everybody's list of movies to see. It's a great deep cut under any circumstances. It's an extremely powerful movie. It does the the pseudo doc thing so well that you might forget. And they even had a disclaimer, I believe, in its release that it was not actually newsreel footage because people were confused. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's powerful. There was also a rumor they were going to remake it with Matt Damon like 10 years ago, which would have been the most <laughs> like it would have been BoJack Horseman. Um, I'm really glad that never came off. Um, regardless, the other thing I wanted to put out in Deep Cuts is not that deep a cut. It's from exactly a year ago. And it's a podcast. It's not a movie. But if you guys, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you probably enjoy other podcasts. And there was a podcast a year ago that came out a multi-part. I think it was 10 episodes called uh, It Could Happen Here. And it was about, it's by this guy, Robert Evans, who uh, is a, you know, he also does this podcast Behind the Bastards, which is really fun. It's just sort of these long, you know, five-part episodes on history's greatest bastards like Mark Zuckerberg and King Leopold. And it's, 
uh, you know, it could happen here as a multi-part podcast about like what it would look like for civil war. And this is civil war in the modern sense. Like modern civil wars don't look like the American civil war in the 1860s. The civil war in Syria, civil wars in, uh, you know, in countries today look much, much different. It's much more sectarian. You've got people in power in one part of the world, and then you've got rebels in other parts of the world. And it's very like, if you're not really engaged on the ground, it's very hard to keep track of like, wait, who's allied with who and how is power being restrained here? But like modern civil wars definitely happen. And it is a 10 part series about like, what would a modern civil war look like if it broke out in the United States? And, um, it's a fascinating, very engaging, very interesting podcast. Uh, and, Interestingly, the episode that he did about, you know, unrest breaking out in the streets of the US and then the president deciding to send in the troops against American citizens uh, was released, I think, a year to the day from Trump ordering National Guard into uh, Minnesota. So it's like, yeah, it's not prophetic necessarily. There's a lot of things in that uh, podcast that haven't been happening, but there's a lot of things in that podcast that have been happening. And it's a really interesting look by someone who's very interested in these issues of what are the things going on right now? Um, so I would say, you know, it's going back to the thing we were talking about earlier, like one of the jobs of filmmakers is about prophetic imagination. And, you know, we talk about that in terms of sci-fi, but like this was something, this was sci-fi set in the near future and like near future sci-fi near future, like, Oh, in the next year or two, these are things that might happen, like are really interesting things to think about. And like, it's a, it's a fascinating exploration of the world that might be coming true. This is not a story necessarily about civil unrest. And it might be one that you've seen echoed right now. And I'm going to take the opportunity to echo it again because here we are. So a lot of people have probably seen When They See Us when it came out on Netflix last year. But there is now a learning companion that goes with the film that Array, Ava DuVernay's company, uh, put out recently, I think as soon as last week or in that kind of recent timeline which is Array101.org. There's learning companions and field study lessons that accompany the film. I think when they see us as required viewing, I think for for a million reasons, uh, particularly right now though too, if you haven't seen it, now's a great time to do that. And there's a number of learning companions and lessons that now accompany it for that viewing. I didn't see it, so... You need to see It's yeah. required viewing, as I said. I think cinematically... There's, I think there's lens flares and so many interesting things that they did with it. So I think cinematically, it's worth viewing. Thematically, obviously, it's, I think it's required viewing. And I was reminded of it because I think around this time last year, Netflix was doing feisty campaigns and they called it feisty, F-Y-S-E-E. Uh, and not just F-Y-C for all their stuff. And you could go to... Um, a lot and see the studio and see all these things they brought out for the feisty campaign for when they see us you could sit in and take photos in a like a cell or like a holding cell so you could take photos with the costumes of glow and you could take photos with all the hair dryers from queer eye and then you came to this and it was the the cell like a holding cell uh, if you will i remember that about um the feisty last year then we all got netflix blankets (laughs) <laughs> there were these picnic blankets that you got they were kind of vinyl on one side and fleece on the other um 
But yes, it was interesting. Uh, it was it's important. It's even more important that it was brought in in that way, in kind of a striking way, amongst literally very bright components of other television shows. Playful components, joyful components. Yeah, it's four episodes. I think it's I call it episodes, but I think each one of them is fairly long. So you're in for it's it's heavy. You're in for a required viewing of of length. I feel like we could also just throw out there because it was recent and like Charles and I both went a little deeper in the past, except for Charles's podcast call out. Um, the Watchmen series yes. seems super yeah. relevant right now. And we yep. talked about it a lot yep. on this podcast and uh, we talked about it a lot on, on, the, on the No Film School website. And I wrote something all about how it was a ultimately it was, you know, kind of an opinionsy piece, but about how it felt like it was a, you know, the end of the of the superhero as kind of like a white male or even white female figure is extremely powerful in terms of race, police situations, <laughs> all this stuff, uh, the South, the legacy of all of it. Um, so yeah, that that's one to, to look at now through a whole new lens. I'd love to hear from our audience about what they recommend and like as far as films and shows on this topic or books and podcasts. So reach out to us and let us know. Editor at nofilmschool.com. All right. So that is it for this week on the No Film School podcast. So I'm going to say one of my favorite writers on all of the internet is Michael Harriet. He writes for The Root, uh, which is part of the Gizmodo uh, family of things. He gives amazing Twitter. Uh, he gives amazing articles on The Root. And uh, yeah, I think everybody should go follow Michael Harriet on Twitter. I would say that there's a ton of great accounts and I'm always looking for new good ones to follow, but now it feels like a really good time to follow the hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag BLM. I feel like you're going to get a mix of stuff there, but you're certainly, that movement is at the forefront of some of the positive goals out of all of this and perspectives. And uh, that's what I would, I would plug for people to follow. I was going to plug the same idea in terms of staying up to date on what's happening or, or following the hashtags appropriate to, to the information. And just be vigilant. There's a lot that's in the Twitter sphere that may not be in your news sphere if you're watching things on TV versus the internet. I would say that it's an extremely important time to look at things carefully. All right, everybody. That's been this week on the New Film School podcast. Stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next week.